Lagos Talks 91.3 and Corporate Shepherds presents the man of the hour. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome I.D. Enang. This is Navigate with I.D. Enang. Welcome, my dear friends. I'm very distinguished listeners to Navigate with I.D. Friends, this is a very special edition, one in which we are bringing together a very formidable address that was delivered by my father and mentor on the 15th of January, and it has to do with bridging the gap between politics and governance. We are at a crossroads as a nation. As you know, we closed the year speaking about leadership, opened the year talking about reflections, and sitting with purpose. Friends, it's all about nation building. And as I present to you this very worthy address, I'd like you to open your minds and receive what you and I need to be able to help us make informed decisions as we go to the polls to elect our leaders. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the opportunity to have a rethink and a relearn on what politics and governance mean. This is Navigate with ID, brought to you by Corporate Shepherds. The theme of today's State of the Nation broadcast is the gap between politics and governance. Fellow citizens, as we mark this year's Armed Forces Remembrance Day today, let me begin this address by saluting our gallant troops who, from the creation of the Nigerian state over a hundred years ago, have played a pivotal role in our journey to nationhood. It was Franklin D. Roosevelt, the 32nd President of the United States of America, who once said, those who have long enjoyed such privileges as we enjoy, forget in time that men have died to win them. Decades after Roosevelt, Barack Obama, President of the United States of America, speaking at a Memorial Day service on May 30, 2011, reminded his nation of the need to honor its fallen heroes. In his words, our nation owes a debt to its fallen heroes that we can never fully repay. But we can honor their sacrifice, and we must. We must honor it in our own lives by holding their memories close to our hearts and heeding the example they set. Still on memories and memorials, the words of Romanian-born writer, Holocaust survivor, and Nobel Peace Prize laureate, Ellie Weasel, ring eternally true, said, Without memory, there is no culture. Without memory, there will be no civilization, no future. In keeping with this noble tradition of honoring the past, why creating the future? As we begin the year 2023, a year in which we, the Nigerian people, once again have an opportunity to decide our nation's preferred future. Let us on this Armed Forces Remembrance Day honor the memories of those who laid down their lives as well as those who put themselves in the line of fire to get us where we are today. From the Nigerian Regiment of 1914 to the exploits of members of the Nigerian Armed Forces who subsequently fought to keep the peace across Africa and the world signaling Nigeria's undisputed potential and unquestionable readiness to emerge as a regional great power 
We remember the unquantifiable contributions of our men and women in uniform. Even as we speak, our troops are on the battlefields and at garrisons across the nation, raising high the banner of courage and the flag of patriotism as they fight against the forces of terrorism, insurgency, banditry, and other forms of violence against the Nigerian people and the Nigerian state. In the words of Andrew Jackson, every good citizen makes his country's honor his own and cherishes not only as precious but as sacred. He is willing to risk his life in his defense and he is conscious that he gains protection while he gives it. With profound gratitude, let us salute these heroes who have put their lives on the line in the defense of our fatherland. To all the fallen heroes who have paid the ultimate price and to the families they left behind, we owe a duty to build a truly great nation that is worthy of their sacrifice. May the souls of our gallant soldiers rest in peace. The truth is incontrovertible that building a great nation begins with healing from past grievances and gangrenous wounds, some of which have continued to fester more than six decades into our journey as an independent nation. This is why even as we celebrate the heroic deeds of our soldiers on this Armed Forces Remembrance Day, we also remember the grievous events that occurred on this day exactly 57 years ago, on January 15, 1966, when our democratic development was disrupted by young military officers in their 20s and 30s who had become impatient with the excesses of the political class, especially the older generation of politicians. We remember with deep sobriety the subsequent devastating consequences of that intrusion, including the violent and the vengeful reprisals, the near breakup of our nation, and the gruesome civil war that ended on this day, 43 years ago, on January 15, 1970, after claiming the lives of irreplaceable Nigerians. As we brace ourselves for the 2023 elections, we are confronted with memory joggers, that bring us face to face with the lingering effects of these and other dark chapters of our history. When one takes a close look at the presidential race, one cannot but observe how the divisive forces that have defined our past have converged, as though reminding us that we as a nation are yet to fix the broken foundations. First, we are confronted with regional and ethnic memory joggers. For the first time since the First and Second Republics, our political process has thrown up three rather than two major contenders for the presidency. As it was in the First and Second Republics, each of the three has a support base in one of the three main regions that constituted the geographical foundation, the geopolitical foundation of our country, namely the North, the West, and the East, mirroring the ethnic origin of each candidate. We support bases largely regional and with drum beats of ethnic confrontation sounding loud and clear, we are faced with a stark reminder that we have merely papered over the cracks of the regional 
and ethnic fault lines in our political history. Secondly, five decades after the end of the Civil War, unanswered questions that border on national reintegration continue to stare us in the face, even as the true political inclusion of the Southeast remains a strong imperative in our quest for nationhood. The momentum around the candidacy of the Labour Party's Mr. Peter Obi has further brought these to the fore, reminding us that as a nation, we cannot face our future with the structural imbalances and inequities that defined our past. Moreover, the obedient movement has also become a memory jogger in the generational context, reminding us of how the undesirable state of the nation and the inadequacies of the old political order can push the youth to the wall, provoking a younger generation that does not pull punches in confronting whoever appears to represent the old order. Unfortunately, nationhood has historically been the casualty and Nigeria has been the loser in such intergenerational wars. Furthermore, the growing support for the candidate of the Labour Party by the Nigerian church communities is worthy of note. However, while the awakening of political consciousness among Christians is commendable, in a religiously diverse polity, the optic of a political strategy that is identified more with one religion than the other is a sad reminder of the lingering divisions clogging the wheels of our journey to nationhood. The messaging and mannerism of some church leaders in this regard is also a pointer to the failure of the ecclesiastical order to recognize that in Nigeria's nationhood equation, you cannot wish Ishmael away. Just as you cannot successfully clap with one hand, you cannot build a logical Nigerian narrative around one religion to the exclusion of the other. This divisive and illogical religious rhetoric also has its propagators among Muslim clerics who seek to rally their congregations in support of the Muslim Muslims ticket of the All Progressive Congress simply because it gratifies their quest for the domination of one religion by another. Those who adopt such a retrogressive religious paradigm that relegates development and good governance to the background have failed to see the link between the massive poverty and underdevelopment in northern Nigeria on the one hand and their brand of Islam on the other hand, which is different from the Thai practice by forward-thinking nations like the United Arab Emirates and Qatar. Indeed, the 2023 general election is coming 30 years after the June 12, 1993 elections. And that proved to be a watershed in our journey to nationhood. That election 30 years ago laid the foundation for our current democratic dispensation upon the sacrifice of Chief MKO Abiola. 30 years on, the Muslim Muslim ticket of the APC has become a memory jogger, reminding us of the intrigues of the 1993 election. Even as the candidacies of Ashwajibola Ahmed Tinumbu, a Muslim, and his running mate, Senator Kashim Shetima, another Muslim, have heightened the religious tension in our polity. The annual June 12, 1993 election has become a reference point for the batified 
who are defenders of the same faith ticket. Meanwhile, their opponents are quick to remind them that 2023 is a generation away from 1993 and presents different circumstances. They prove that 1993 and 2023 are a generation apart is the fact that the young have since grown. This is evident in the fact that 30 years after 1993, Kola Abiola, the son of Chief M.K. Abiola, is on the ballot as a presidential candidate of the People's Redemption Party in 2023. However, the sad reality is that while the young have grown, we as a nation have not grown in national unity these past 30 years, but have rather become more divided by religion. Meanwhile, the candidacy of former Vice President Atiku Abubakar of the People's Democratic Party, PDP, has brought to the fore the unresolved North-South dimension of the national question. Despite the unifying messaging of the articulated and despite the religious balancing that defines the ticket, the power rotation conundrum is a memory jogger pointing to our failure as a nation over the decades to revisit foundational issues and carve out governance structures that can harness the best of the North and the best of the South. In addition to the memory joggers presented by these three frontline political leanings, the 2023 presidential election also brings class divisions to the fore. The candidacy of Dr. Rabi Musa Kwakwanzo of the new Nigeria People's Party, NNPP, has been cast in the mold of Malam Aminu Kano. However, the Kwakwanzia momentum among the Talakawas, or so-called ordinary people in northern Nigeria, is also a reminder of the history of bad governance and the weaponization of deprivation that has left 86 million people in the region wallowing in multidimensional poverty. There is no greater proof of the widening gap between politics and governance in Nigeria than the fact that 40 years after the disruptive politics of Aminu Kanu, northern Nigeria remains overwhelmingly poor despite the dominance of that region in our politics since independence. This gap between politics and governance, which has been further widened by the polarizing convergence of ethnic, generational, religious, regional, and class divisions, is what we, the Nigerian people, are confronted with in 2023. Nigeria is again at a pivotal crossroads. The divisive campaigns of the frontline candidates of the four major parties have turned logic on its head so that no matter the optimistic permutations, there is palpable fear all around us as to what election 2023 has in store for a fragile nation. It appears that whichever choice we make among the leading candidates will still be confronted with unresolved divisions. However, this is no time to be paralyzed by divisive and debilitating fear. Rather, this moment beckons on us to look in faith to the one God by whose help we can build one great and united country. With this faith, we can rest assured that the new Nigeria will be established and that the verdict of the 2023 election will be Nigeria wins. Nevertheless, we are left with the following lingering questions. Who among these candidates offers the best guarantee of a Nigeria that works for every Nigerian? Who amongst them 
Is there perhaps a dark horse among those not considered main contenders who offers the best part of our aspirations as a nation? Still, is there any Nigerian out there who possesses the qualities that our nation needs at this time, but who, due to the kind of politics that is prevalent in Nigeria, does not have ease or name on the ballot? While I leave you to reflect on these questions, let me state the purpose of this address is to equip you as Nigerians with tools to assess any politician who has offered himself or herself for an elective position in 2023, as well as those who do so after 2023. With this background, let us now proceed to what I call the Politics and Governance Laboratory, where we will conduct a diagnosis of the governance capabilities of the politicians who are vying for political offices, especially the presidency in 2023. In the meantime, permit me to round off my thoughts on the convergence of divisive forces by pointing out one more historically divisive force that we must manage carefully as we approach the 2023 elections. By this, I'm referring to the historical contentions between the military and the political class, which in the past brought the military out of the barracks, disrupted the democratic process, and imposed military dictatorship on the Nigerian state. This year's presidential election will be the first since the return to democracy in 1999 that we now have a retired general or a former military head of state on the ballot. That's a good place to clap and thank God. Indeed, apart from Major Amsa Al-Mustafa of the Action Alliance Party, who had already stepped down, none of the presidential candidates has had a military career. Without prejudice to the rights of retired military personnel to contest elections of civilians, for a country with a history of almost three cumulative decades of military rule, this shift in the domination of the political space from ex-military to civilian is a milestone as it speaks of, to the progressive development of a democratic culture in Nigeria. However, in what appears to be a proxy clash of power, we have also seen speculative reports of retired generals and ex-military heads of state throwing their weight behind one candidate or the other. This has the makings of a showdown between the former military leaders on the one hand and veteran politicians on the other. Nevertheless, as the last of the ex-military heads of state bows out of the presidency this year, the fact remains that an era of democratic transition is giving way to a new era of democratic institutionalization. An enormous responsibility therefore rests on the shoulders of the political class at this time to preserve our democratic gains while providing leadership to the military and keeping it content with its responsibility to defend our territorial integrity. This era of democratic institutionalization calls for not just any type of leader, not just politicians who seek power for the sake of power, not leaders whose legitimacy can be questioned, but leaders with character, competence, and capacity, emerging through free, fair, and credible elections, and possessing the capacity to translate political capital to governance outcomes. Please bear this in mind 
as we now proceed to the politics and governance laboratory to conduct a diagnosis of the political landscape. Are you ready? In the politics and governance laboratory, our diagnosis will not be targeted at individual politicians, but at the kinds of politics we have observed in the Nigerian political landscape. This diagnosis will be based on what I call the good tree, good fruit, and the bad tree, bad fruit principle. This principle is inspired by the words of the Lord Jesus Christ to his disciples in Matthew 7, 15 to 20. It reads, and I quote, But where of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous woes, you will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grace from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. This principle of detecting the veracity of processes from outcomes, of predicting outcomes from processes, is applicable not just in the prophetic, but also in the political context. It is based on the idea that destructive means cannot bring about a constructive end. From the kind of politics practice by those offering themselves for public office, we can predict the governance outcomes they will output even when they obtain power. Yes or no? This is the principle by which we will subject the 2023 elections to scrutiny in the politics and governance laboratory. First, let us take a brief look at the difference between politics and governance. In simple terms, the Oxford Learners Dictionary defines politics as the activities involved in getting and using power in public life and being able to influence decisions that affect the country or in society. Governance derives from the word govern, which means to legally control a country or its people and be responsible for introducing new laws, organizing public services, etc., etc. While politics refers to a set of activities geared towards obtaining and retaining power, governance refers to the deployment of power through policies institutions, and investments. The difference between politics and governance could be likened to the difference between courtship and marriage. Courtship is the win, while marriage is the doing. Courtship is the profession of law, while marriage is the hard work of selfless sacrificial law. In the same manner, politics is the process of win voters, power blocks, and other stakeholders towards backing a candidate, a party, or a cause of action, why governance is the rolling up of sleeves to fulfill the promises made in the quest for power. This is what Mario Cuomo, the former governor of New York, meant when he said, you campaign in poetry, but you govern in prose. Politics, however, does not end with campaigns. Even after campaigns, politics and governance coexist as an overlapping and reinforcing loop. This overlap of politics and governance is reflected in the classical definitions of politics by political scientists David Easton and Harold Laswell. 
While David Easton described politics as the authoritative allocation of value, Arad Laswell saw politics as a mechanism that decides who gets what, when, and how. This overlap of politics and governance is what plays out when governments seek to balance competing political interests in areas that fall under the purview of governance, such as how much should be allocated to different sectors or constituencies in the budget. However, for the purpose of this address, we see politics as a process of securing power and governance as the output of power, that is, politics as a tree and governance as a fruit. Two types of politics and their governance outcomes. Based on the good tree, good fruit, and bad tree, bad fruit principle, there are two broad types of politics, namely good politics, which translates to good governance, and bad politics, which translates to bad governance. We'll begin our analysis with the latter. Bad politics and bad governance. Bad politics is politics for politics' sake. Its dominant aim is to secure power, and it seeks to do so at all costs. Governance is secondary to this kind of politics and may be altogether absent from its list of priorities. Even when promises of good governance are present in the manifestos of the practitioners of bad politics, such promises are merely a small screen concealing their true motivations. When bad politics achieves its power-grabbing aim, its governance decisions and priorities are motivated by the desire to retain and consolidate power. This motivation is what drives policies, investments, and the management of institutions. Bad politics could take any of the following ten forms. Are you ready? The ten shapes and ten forms of bad politics. Number one, politics of division. The politics of division or divisive politics is adopted by politicians who capitalize on the polarization in our polity to achieve their political ambitions. Rather than seeking to build a bridge, such politicians use ethnic, regional, religious, partisan, generational, and class divisions to build dams between the people in order to appease political support bases. The agents of divisive politics do not hesitate to throw equitable representation and inclusion out the window because politics to them is a game of numbers, while a sense of inclusion is secondary. They do not take a stand on issues of nationhood when they sense that taking a stand could infuriate their extremist support bases. Fellow Nigerians, you may be wondering what kind of governance outcomes the policies of division outputs. This kind of politics can extinguish the dying embers of patriotism and further intensify the feelings of marginalization. It will nurture nepotism in political appointments and sectionalism in the allocation of projects and resources. In a nutshell, divisive politics attacks the foundations of nationhood and fosters underdevelopment. Number two, politics of deception. The politics of deception is defined by an attempted mixture of good tree and bad tree characteristics. The purveyors of this kind of politics thrive on false premises, including forged identities, 
contrived statistics, deliberate misinformation, propaganda, and such post-truth anecdotes that became known as alternative facts in the government of former U.S. President Donald Trump. In addition to false promises, they have no intention of fulfilling the design to lure unsuspecting voters. It was such politicians that former French President Charles de Gaulle referred to when he said, since a politician never believes what he says, he is quite surprised to be taken at his word. The governor's implication of the politics of deception is a lack of accountability and transparency, as well as a legacy of failed promises, because deceptive means cannot bring about a credible end. Number three, politics of manipulation. Listen to this very well. If you have ever wondered why some political leaders have their countries, their regions, or their states in the palm of their hands, as those such territories were their private estates and the people their zombie subjects, then welcome to the workings of the politics of manipulation. Manipulative politicians are masters at the art of mind control. They deploy various means, from the hypnotic to the philanthropic, to maintain loyalty to such an extent that defies rationality. Such politicians are adept at state capture and the weaponization of poverty. They loot the treasury and use the looted funds to win loyalty through acts of generosity. One cannot but agree with Joseph Addison, who posited that is there not some chosen curse, some hidden thunder in the stars of heaven, red with uncommon wrath to blast the man who owes his greatness to his country's ruin. The governance outcomes of the politics of manipulation include a descent into dictatorship, human rights violations, grand corruption, lack of accountability, and the perpetuation of poverty. Number four, politics of merchandise, also known as transactional politics. The politics of merchandise is practiced by politicians who buy delegates <laughs> and, del and candidates during primaries purchase endorsement from power blocks and influencers during campaigns and buy voters during elections. The governance that results from this kind of politics is characterized by lack of accountability to citizens. When politicians get to power through vote buying, they do not think that they owe us, the citizens, any obligation. As a result, they have no business with us until the next elections. Fellow citizens, in 2023, we must reject political merchants and vote buyers. That's a good place to say amen. This is Navigate with ID, brought to you by Corporate Shepherds. Number five, politics of exploitation. The politics of exploitation is practiced by incumbents who divert state resources to the election campaigns or to fund anointed candidates. These politicians also exploit otherwise non-partisan institutions such as security agencies to carry out their political shenanigans. It's also common to find exploitative politicians denying the opposition legitimate use of facilities. The politics of exploitation erodes confidence in institutions. It depletes patriotism, fosters corruption, and sabotages critical sectors of the economy. Number six, politics of betrayal. This is so common here. 
The policy of betrayal is a brand of transactional politics deployed by candidates who lack a sense of loyalty. Policies of betrayal is what is at play when political leaders sell out members of their political party for political gain. For instance, when in a bid to win a particular state at the presidential election, a presidential candidate of a given party makes backdoor deals with the governor of that state who is from an opposing political party in such a manner that throws the governorship candidate of his party under the balls. That is the politics of betrayal at play. Policies of betrayal amounts to what Mahatma Gandhi describes as politics without principles, and it will ultimately produce unprincipled leaders who will not hesitate to betray the citizens when they are faced with difficult choices. If you're looking for a clear example of policies of betrayal, look at how many people have done acrobatic display from APC to PDP, from PDP to APC, and they have become any government in power. They have no principles. They are ready to sleep with dogs and get on with fleas. Number seven, politics of slander. Also known as gutter politics, the politics of slander deploys character assassination, whereas transparency and accountability mandate that those who offer to serve the public good must come clean before the public. Politicians must realize that you don't rise by destroying others. The policies of slander will produce mafia-type rulers who lack decency and who can go to any length, including Watergate-type of extremes, to dig out death on opponents. Such politics can breed incivility in governance as well as stall development. In the words of Samuel Griswold Goodrich, abuse is a weapon of the vulgar. Say that with me. Abuse is a weapon of the vulgar. Number eight, politics of intimidation. The practitioners of the policies of intimidation use violence and scare tactics to undermine opposition and disenfranchise voters. The result of such politics is voter apathy and the avoidance of the political landscape by competent and credible candidates, especially women. Such politics will produce leaders that lack legitimacy and who have no genuine sense of accountability to the people. Nine, politics of elimination. When we think of the politics of elimination, we remember our nation's unresolved political assassinations and the lingering questions they elicite. Who killed Funsha Williams? Who killed Bolaige? Who killed Marshall Harry? Who killed Victoria Chintex? By eliminating opponents, the practitioners of the policies of elimination deprive the nation of leaders who are, more often than not, better than themselves. Number 10, politics of entitlement. This is the Milokon type of politics that insists on one's turn even if circumstances do not align. Politics of entitlement also manifest as perennial candidacy, not with the intent to serve, but to gratify long-term personal ambitions. It could also manifest as insistence on a given political office as a reward for what one considers a lifetime of sacrifice to the nation. Politicians with a sense of entitlement evade political debates. They do not consider it imperative to communicate with the electorate. Entitlement politics will breed an imperial presidency that is distant from the people 
and has no sense of responsibility or accountability to the people. Such imperial governance will slide towards dictatorship and will be intolerant of dissent. Entitlement politicians set low performance benchmarks for themselves when they secure power and are content with projecting mole hills as mountains of achievement. That's bad politics, bad fruits, and all that it is. But let's go to good politics and good governance. Say that with me. Good politics. Good governance. Fellow Nigerians, having completed our analysis of bad politics and bad governance, uh, its outputs, let us now take a look at good politics and its output of good governance. Good politics is pragmatic politics in the interest of the people. It is characterized by a pragmatic approach to distributing value and it seeks to improve the lives of the people in a manner that ensures that no one is left behind. Pragmatism in politics entails compromise and trustful give and take. Such pragmatic politics was what German statesman Otto von Bismarck meant when he famously said, politics is the art of the possible, the attainable, the art of the next best. In such politics, everyone gets a seat at the table through representation. Even if no one gets all they want on the negotiation table as individuals, the collective satisfaction more than makes up for the trade-offs. This characteristic of good politics reminds us of the words of Mahatma Gandhi, we have sufficient for everyone, everybody's needs, but not for the agreed. Through equitable representation, good politics results in good governance, which executes policies, plans, and programs in such a manner that ensures that citizens have access to public goods, including education, healthcare, and infrastructure. Good politics translates to good governance because it has the following 10 major characteristics. Number one, it is principled and values guided. Good politics may make compromises on its demand in the interest of the nation, but it will never compromise on principles and values. Number two, it is realistic. It does not avoid reality, but rather confronts it. While admitting the problems and paradoxes plaguing the nation, it acknowledges that what has worked and gives due credit to its predecessors. Number three, it is inspirational. Good politics does not dwell indefinitely on the problems. Instead, it recognizes the nation's potential and based on an accurate and systematic analysis of the state of the nation, it leaves the people above the problems and shows them the possibilities of a great nation. Number four, it is vision-driven. Good politics encapsulates the nation's possibilities in a clear picture of the preferred future. Number five, it is issue-based. Good politics focuses on salient issues of development rather than resorting to slander, character assassination, or mudslinging. Number six, it is data-guided. The practitioners of good politics build their campaign promises on evidence. They are not unduly skeptical of data, but they endeavor to use statistics and qualitative data accurately. Number seven, it is communicative. Politicians who practice good politics talk to the people they intend to govern. By communicating, they allay fears, restore hope, 
and assure the citizenry. Number eight is engaging and interactive. The practitioners of good politics are open to interrogation and they do not avoid debates or evade difficult questions. They don't even delegate their questions to people to answer for them. Number nine, it is inclusive. Good policies gives a sense of belonging to historically excluded or vulnerable groups, including women, young people, the elderly, and persons living with disabilities. Number 10, it is nationhood-oriented. Good politics builds bridges across divisive lines and unites people towards a common cause of national greatness. The practitioners of good politics esteem nationhood above ethnic, religious, partisan, and other sentiments. Their motto is one nation under God. Say that with me. One nation under God. Such politics with the aforementioned noble features will produce the governance outcomes identified by the United Nations as characteristic of good governance. Good governance in such a state will be participatory, consistent with the rule of law, transparent, responsive, consensus-oriented, equitable, and inclusive, effective and efficient, and accountable. Furthermore, the governance output of good politics will be characterized by increase or sustainable growth, peace, order, establishment, good judgment, or effective policy-making, justice, and patriotic zeal. These qualities are contained in the framework of government described in Isaiah chapter 9, 6 to 9. You can't find it elsewhere. It reads, and I quote, For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace. Peace is a foundation of increase. Where you don't find peace, there will be no stability, there will be no increase. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice. From that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this in Nigeria. In the mighty name of Jesus. Bridging the gap through the politics of substitution. Fellow citizens, to bridge the gap between politics and governance, we must press the eject button on the bastions of bad politics. Wherever we have unwittingly thrown our collective weight behind liars, behind such purveyors of the kind of politics that produces bad governance, we must now activate the politics of substitution and give our support to persons who from their politics we can tell we serve the public good using the power we confer on them by our votes. Now is the time to make up our minds and make that choice. In the words of William James, when you have to make a choice and don't make it, that is in itself a choice. When you have to make a choice and don't make it, that in itself is a choice. Fellow citizens, our history as a nation has been characterized by contention between polarizing forces, between the North and the South, between the Igbos, Yorubas, 
House of Fulanis, and the over 250 additional ethnic groups between Christians and Muslims, between the old and the young, between the military on the one end and statesmen and politicians on the other. But now is the time, and this is the moment, for a new breed of leaders to emerge. A new breed of leaders that can situate themselves between polarizing forces and bring every constituency together on the table of brotherhood. A new breed of leaders that can reconcile past grievances and marginalization and give every constituent part of our nation a prominent seat at the table. A new breed of leaders that can shift our national focus from divisiveness of bad politics to those common grounds where politics cannot divide us. The common grounds of our shared aspiration for peace, progress, possibility, prosperity, the common grounds of our shared need for security, nutrition, education, healthcare, jobs, success in business, access to electricity, good roads, and other functional infrastructure. The common grounds of our shared desire for national glory and achievement across endeavors and to be recognized and celebrated as citizens of a great nation among the nations of the world. Now is the time to make that shift from politics for politics' sake to politics for the sake of governance. When we make that shift from being politics merely as a vehicle for grabbing and retaining power to politics as a vehicle heading towards good governance, when we make good governance the central focus of our politics, when we jettison bad politics in its various forms and embrace the kind of politics that outputs good governance, then and only then will we welcome the new Nigeria, a nation that can become the peace, progress, prosperity, and possibilities capital of the world. Let us therefore resolve to make governance the driving force of our politics as we approach the polls in 2023, knowing that whoever wins in the end, the verdict will remain. Nigeria wins. Thank you for listening. God bless you. And God bless our beloved nation, Nigeria. And I hear a good amen. amen. I'd like to use the last 10 minutes for prayers. I've shared with you the burden of a prophet. If he speaks, he's in trouble. If he does not speak, he's in trouble. I want you to pray first and foremost uh, this third prayer today for those who publish what they have heard. The Bible says in Psalm 68 verse number 11, God gave the world great as a company of them that publish it. Let us pray that for all newspapers, uh, agents and television and radio that will be here, they will report us accurately. They will not misinterpret. They will not embellish they will say what we have said, the way we have said it, without sensationalizing anything. Let's pray for our journalists. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you for those who publish what we have said today. The Bible says God gave the word. Great is the company of those who publish it. I pray that these ones present here today will become great by publishing the truth and by not sensationalizing anything that they have heard here in Jesus' mighty name. Number four, the prayer point, Psalm 56, verse 5 to 7. Psalm 56, 5 to 7. All day they twist my words, and their thoughts are against me for evil. 
They gather together, they hide, they mark my steps. When they lie in wait for my life, shall they escape by iniquity? In anger, cast down the people's oh God. Lord, in the name of Jesus, we ask that you touch the heart of mischief makers who try to twist what we have said here so that they don't enter their own waterloo in the name of Jesus. I pray that they will not place wrong interpretation of what we say and you will help them to become accurate in their reporting, not sensationalizing, not twisting any word, but become great companies of those who publish the true word. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. People of God, 30 years ago, just before June 12, 1993, I gave you a prophetic word few weeks to the election. I said to you, SDP will fail, NRC will lose, be cut off and swallowed up, the military will fall, verdict 93, our God reign. Did it come to pass? I can't hear you. Did it come to pass? Hear me loud and clear. History is about to repeat itself. Verdict 2023, Nigeria wins. Somebody shout, Nigeria wins. After President Ibrahim Babangida stepped aside, I spoke to you by the Spirit of the Lord that Shonekos interim government will be beheaded like Ishbosheth. Well, the Supreme Court did the actual job by declaring the interim government illegal and unconstitutional. Did I not say so before it happened? Did it happen? Now, before Shonekos government was sent packing, the Lord showed me a very fat cut dressed in camouflage uniform of the Nigerian army, who stood before two pieces of meat, suspended by a thread, and labeled SDP and NRC. The fat cat ate both of them, but an arrow from heaven was shot and pierced through the fat cat and killed it. I told you then that the military would take over and abolish both SDP and NRC. Did that happen? I also told you that whoever will play that role will pay with his life. Did it not happen? I can't hear you. Abaja took over and started oppressing everyone. I stood before you here in Lagos and started singing. Abacha will be butchado. Hallelujah. 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 Abacha will be butchado. Hallelujah. 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 They call us religious politicians. And all. No, we are not politicians. We are nation builders. I sang that song. The Directorate of Military Intelligence came here to arrest me, took me to their papa, Ikoyana papa, interrogated me for hours and released me to go. I returned here and I said, Abacha, we butchado. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thereafter, I went to Kanu for the Conference of Prophetic and Apostolic Churches and I declared prophetically that Mutala Muhammad will not be the last head of state to be brought home dead. Abacha is coming home dead. He was alive then and all kinds of terror. Uh, they began to release terror and frightening things against me. But it did not happen. Subsequently, Abacha arrested Dia and other top military officers, including General Zadizan Olani Waju, for a coup d'etat or a coup plot. I stood before you that when the killer wants to kill, the killer shall be killed. It was published verbatim by Tell Magazine. Did it come to pass or not? Okay. My life was threatened and some palace prophets came here to tell us that Abacha will succeed himself as a civilian president. 
using the five parties he engineered to be registered, which were later called the five fingers of his leper. I stood before you and preached my last message in Abacha from Proverbs chapter 12, verse number 10. The tender messages of the wicked are cruel. Abacha, your time is up. Today's broadcast in the name of Jesus. Everyone in the polity manipulating, practicing bad politics, I declare, I decree, your time is up. Your time is up. These brokers will liberate our people. These brokers will keep our people. These brokers will cause them to act very appropriately. In the name of Jesus. According to Rob Button Perry, Rob Perry said, Voting is the least address of a citizen's duties. He has a prior and harder duty of making up his mind. Someone may ask a question. What do we do if we are faced with two evils? My sincere counsel to you today as believers, we cannot afford to rule out the God factor. The Lord is still the governor among the nations. Let us trust him to replace two evils with two goods. You think everything is closed, but a new chapter, a new book is about to be opened. All these four horses of the apocalypse running up and down are going nowhere. There's going to be a resurgence. A new thing will happen and God will give Nigeria two people, two opportunities to choose to move the nation forward. In the name of Jesus. So what do I say to you? I will quote Tryon Edward. He said, between two evils, choose neither. And between two goods, choose both. This to my mind is the direction of the wind of the spirit. The wind of the spirit is blowing. In replacing the old order with new. And before we cast any vote, a new breed without greed will emerge. Verdict 2023, Nigeria wins in the mighty name of Jesus. 30 years ago, Verdict 93, our God reigns. God Almighty is now causing Nigeria to win. And everyone holding Nigeria down is history. Their time is up in the mighty name of Jesus. Hey, 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 get ready. There will be outbreak of joy, widespread joy in this land. In the name of Jesus, begin to look through the window, expecting good news that very, very soon, new candidates will arise. All candidates will perish in Jesus' mighty name. Distinguished listeners, thank you so much for listening in. As always, I hope you found that address very insightful like I did. And if you have any questions, you and I can then put this through the social media platforms. My handle is at I-D-Y-E-N-A-N-G. And I dare say that we'll upload part of this on my social media platforms for you to listen again. Thank you and God bless. And that was Navigate with ID, brought to you by Corporate Shepherds.